1: They're so good they make us want to sing like I can't believe
0: it Burger King made a quill, Baby, the heart of anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grill dog for a dollar. only at Burger King at participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd limit 5 per transaction while supplies last.
1: Welcome to part two of Real GM Radio's Year in Review for 2013. I'm your host, Daniel LaRue. In this part, I have three guests that are all affiliated with Real GM. First up is Jonathan Charks, second is Andrew Perna, and third is Shams Trania. We each talk about the big moments of the year, the big storylines, and lots of interesting discussions trying to take everybody in different directions. And there's a part one, if you haven't listened to that yet, you can listen to it before or after. They don't build on each other. And after all three of them, I'm going to give a quick take for myself of each one. First up is Jonathan Charks. He writes for Real GM, and hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much to Jonathan for coming on.
2: Hey, man, how you doing?
1: Doing well. So it's interesting with this format, because the calendar year doesn't sync up with the NBA year. But I still think it's a, it's a good exercise to kind of see everything in a larger scope. So what do you see as the biggest story of 2013 for the NBA?
0: Well, I think really, we look at the NBA Finals, it was just like the rise of four-out basketball. Both the the Spurs and the Heat took their big men off the floor, and they were playing one in, four out pretty much the last four or five games. And I think, like, basically everyone's playing like Mike D'Antoni these days. The floor is spread really wide. You get shooters all over the floor, and there isn't enough room to guard everything. So these modern offenses, I think, at some point you have to give up something. That's what they're designed to do. And you can still see a, a team like Indiana or Memphis use the two posts and get, get pretty far in the playoffs. But I think now they, they are the counterpunchers, the two post teams. And instead of being a traditional way of doing things, they are like the new contrarian way of doing things. And really the four-hour basketball has really taken over the sport if you look around the league these days.
1: Do you see that more as a statement about personnel, or is it just taking advantage of kind of thinking about the court differently?
0: Well, I think it's probably, you know, chicken and egg kind of thing. definitely the math is there for the threes. And then with the way the game is played in the AAU level, it's just not very half-court oriented at all. And as these guys come up into the NBA, they're much more comfortable playing without a big man delay and clogging things up. They like playing in space. And even the big men can shoot threes these days. That I think is the next really what you're just starting to see in the college game, is these big men who can defend and shoot threes, like Adrian Payne or, Austin, or Isaiah Austin possibly, like that those kind of like so basically the Serge Ibaka skill set, I think you'll start seeing more and more coming into the sport.
1: Well, and going along with that, it's been really interesting to see the just how few true back to the basket centers exist in the league anymore. Even guys who have center size right now don't have back to the basket games more often than not.
0: Yeah, I mean, those guys are becoming rarer and rarer, and which in a way almost makes them more valuable because if you can run a team out against 80% of the league pretty easily, But you can play the Pacers. You have to have different personnel, not with Roy Hibbert. It's just you have to be really, really big to be a good post player, I guess, the main thing. Like, in the, on the NBA level, you better be a freaking mountain of a man to dominate the ball in the low block looking back to the basket. If you're going to be 6'8", 6'9", even 6'10", you've got to get out in space because the NBA guys are so freaking big. You really can't post up these, like, seven-foot-two monsters unless you're a monster yourself.
1: Well, and also in terms of back-to-the-basket game now, you because of the way that they're blitzing guys with their back-to-the-basket when they have the ball, you have to be able to dribble, pass, or shoot relatively quickly, which is also a change. You can't get those, you know, four-second post-ups and then going to an, into a hook shot because two or three seconds in, somebody's coming after you.
0: Oh, yeah, that was a great – there was a great quote from uh, Stevens. He had, a, he had a Q&A with uh, Zach Lowe, and he was saying how the post-up really is more a vehicle for inside-out play versus straight A dribbles, back-back-back hook shot or whatever. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think posting up still works. You just have a very special player to make it to, to justify doing it. But for those special players, it's will always work.
1: And what's fun about the guys currently in the league who can do that? I'm thinking about a guy like Marcus Ole. Oftentimes now, those guys are good passers and good scorers, so they actually amplify the difference between them and the other guys in the league.
0: Well, yeah. If you're gonna be a post scorer you gotta you gotta be able to pass out a double team for sure. Or if there's only it's got a real feeling on your game. You can't do that.
1: Makes sense. So we'll, we'll do the only negative category next, and that's the uh, biggest disappointment of 2013.
0: Well, I think for me, even more than like a team, it's just all the guys who got hurt this year and how like, it's, it's such a freaking domino effect like with Rose's injuries on that whole franchise. It's just hard to see something like that happen. It's devastating. And I think really like all the sports VU stuff, if there's a way to know like a guy's knee is starting to have issues or something or the Kobe's Achilles last year, that's where that's really handy, I think. If we can figure out a way to know when a guy's knee is more likely to get hurt, if, that, if that's even the way how it goes.
1: Do you have any operating ideas? I mean, obviously, I don't think either of us has the medical background enough to have it as really a theory of why it seems like there are more severe injuries happening more regularly now.
0: Yeah, I really don't. because I haven't even seen how it was 20, 30 years ago to know what the differences were in terms of injuries. I my mean, suspicion is just the size speed of these players, the number of games they play. That's, that's my suspicion. I have no numbers for that. But I suspect in a 60-game season with fewer games every week, you would see fewer injuries. That, that's, there's no way to know that, though. That's just purely a guess
2: on my part.
1: Yeah, if, I, I feel like if there were no back-to-backs in the NBA at all, even that change would probably make a meaningful difference because that kind of strain must be really hard on players.
0: Yeah, and, you'll, and you almost never see a back-to-back at home either. It's always a back-to-back going on the road, traveling across the country.
1: That's true. I hadn't. I hadn't really thought about that, but you do see it far more often. And I'm guessing that's because of for attendance purposes, because it's hard to expect fans to come two days in a row. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: So moving on, I'm not going to do an MVP of the year because I think that gets a little bit sticky in terms of value. But who do you think has been the most outstanding player of 2013?
0: Well, I mean, if anyone didn't say LeBron James to that question, I think you know it isn't even really a question. You know, it is just LeBron he's he's the king it's his moment he's the pound of his career he can do everything we just we have just watch just watch the showman
1: do you have a number two clearly in your mind or is it between a couple guys
0: well i think clearly lebron and durant durant i think he's getting there every year what makes it so great is durant's got a model to grow on every year he can know like i have to do this better because that's what lebron does i got like lebron's like his way he's going at his goal basically so he always has that finger reach for I think he's pretty well separated himself from the rest of the packs so as one, two, and then then the
1: list. The interesting dynamic between the two of them also is that in terms of their physical attributes, they do it very differently. Because LeBron is just a physical animal in terms of size and speed, whereas Le- whereas Durant uses wingspan and he has a, a much better natural shooting motion and things like that to get it done. But then their end game is like if you looked at statistics, is not not as far apart as it would seem.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, they're just perfect for each other. It should be a really compelling thing for the next decade, if we're lucky.
1: I was talking with somebody recently about about that, and that the most interesting LeBron hypothetical would be if he picked up both of his option years, and then he and Durant were free agents the same year.
0: Oh, my God. That's crazy. I had not even thought of that. That's insane. I, I, yeah, if they did, man, oh, I guess you have the Olympic team for that. But I, even thought, but I think the option year thing makes sense for the Heat. Because they're playing so well right now, just one year at a time, every year. It could be way days, you know.
1: And he's taking – he has a different kind of risk because I think that it's pretty well understood that unless he has a catastrophic injury – and I would think you can make the argument that even if he did, that somebody will give him the full max because he's oh, worth it. About LeBron? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no question. Yeah, I mean, if you're sitting there and you're the Charlotte Bobcats and LeBron, heaven forbid – misses a whole year because of an ACL injury or an Achilles, you're still offering him the max if he's an unrestricted free agent.
0: The one thing I wonder, like, with the way LeBron plays, he plays so under control now. I, I don't think he will get hurt, like, a the injury that, because, like, he never really forced things anymore. If there's two guys, on am just pass the ball. If he's going to land, he'll be landing in a clear area. So he's not going to go into traffic and force a bad shot and get hurt.
1: Interesting. So, just, like, from a yeah. personal
0: perspective – now I, I, I still play a lot. I, I don't ever get hurt anymore because I'm always just never forcing things. And if I'm kind of lazy. I don't jump. But more importantly, like I'm not trying to get into spots where I'm going to get hurt with my feet. I know how to protect myself out there.
1: Have you given any thought to how he's going to play when he gets older and his bu- he starts losing the speed advantage he has on everybody?
0: Well, I mean, I imagine he'll just start becoming more of a power post player. Be like Carl Malone, kind of just 18 foot jumpers, post ups, and passing.
1: I think it'd be fun. I don't know if he'll ever want to do it, but to see him try to defend non-traditional centers when he gets a little bit, if he decides to use that time to bulk up a little bit. So obviously I don't think he can defend Roy Hibbert, but the teams, let's say, let's say Chris Bosh. Like I think he could defend Chris Bosh without too much of a problem. Oh, yeah. No question.
0: I mean, he seemed to in the Olympics. So he was guarding the Gasol for a while.
1: Yeah. Okay. So the next one on a similar line is the coach of 2013.
0: I'm gonna go with uh, Spo. I feel he doesn't get. I feel he kind of gets a bad rap for his. Uh, obviously, he kind of coached himself. I'm not really. Spo has to pull all those buttons the right way. Like I did an article this year about how if you switch Spo and Scott Brooks, I don't think that he would have won the last two championships because he would not have stuck. He would have stuck with Joel Anthony and all kinds of things. Spo did. And what really, what, I think what makes Spo a good coach is he has the respect in the locker room where he can make adjustments for the lineups and people will not freak out about it. They'll trust him in what he's doing. Because there's so many coaches who don't put the right lineups because of political reasons. And Spoh's got no time for that. He's going to put the guys who's going to win, who he thinks will win on the floor every night. I don't think Scott Brooks thinks Perk makes his team win. I I really don't. People mock Scott Brooks, but he's not completely clueless. It's just a matter of the Paul situation and the team itself. He doesn't want to do that.
1: The other part that, Makes Bolstra to me remarkable of high level coaches is not only that in terms of guys with minutes, but in terms of combinations. It feels like he's willing to try anything to see if it works. You know, he might, he's not going to stick with it forever if it doesn't work, but he'll try different things, and that's led to some really interesting lineups for the Heat as well over the years.
0: Oh, yeah, that's one thing I like about Rick Carlisle in Dallas. It's like, yeah, he's just not afraid to try different things. That's such a thing. I think both me and you, we grew up watching Bon Nelson at different points in his career. So it's just like, why not, man? You know, it's a long season. It's just not too cold. Just try different things. There's so many coaches who are afraid of failure. They're not willing to try push the boundaries. That's something Spo and Carlisle both do really well.
1: And on the season note, it would be interesting to see. I think that if Beasley can be a productive player for them, I think to me that's a big argument for Spellstra for coach of the of the season because – he was pretty much left for dead, even though he was, uh, even though he had natural basketball talent in many ways. But to get what it seems like they're getting out of him is remarkable.
0: Yeah, I think going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's all about getting guys in space. Like you get Beasley in a space where he can go one on one, and there's no one near him. If it's double, he can make the pass. So he have doesn't to have to make too many decisions. Whereas if you're playing in a real like half court system with two big men, it's all about cutting and spacing and continuity. But if you play in space, it's just, man, it's just basketball. It's like what the Suns are doing, kind of. All these guys in the Suns are playing career years, so they're all playing in space. To, the game is very simplified for them.
1: I'm guessing you would pick LeBron as your prediction for player of the year for 2014. Do you have a guess on who will be the, who could be coach of the year for the next year?
0: I'm going uh, to say one second. I love what he's doing in Phoenix. They might they be my, my, my favorite team to watch now in the NBA over the last few weeks. They have really got it going right now. And they, everyone is just clicking, and that that team like was not for dead by everybody. I mean, I was a a Jerry Bledsoe fan, and I didn't think he would do what he did for sure. No, no one played be this good right away, and I think Hornacek deserves a ton of credit for that.
1: They've done an amazing job. I think you can make the argument that he's done the most with the least because you think about, for me, what I think about with them is their swingman rotation, that they, they're they playing Bledsoe and Dragish together a lot, which is helping resolve that. But, you know, other than that, they have guys like Gerald Green, who's a talent but has those flaws, P.J. Tucker. But very few teams have done anything similar to what they've done with the talent they have.
0: I mean, Miles Plumdog, Plumley. I can't believe he's a good player, but he is. That's one guy I was totally wrong about. I mean, he's better than he wasn't Duke. He just – he yeah. did nothing, and he's just – he's playing great, great for them.
1: The last c- category for this year in review is your single, the moment of the year for you.
0: Well, I mean, I think for me it's, it's easy. It's Trey Allen, game six. That's one of those things 50 years from now we'll be talking about. That was just – that's what that, – I mean, that's basketball, I think. That was just incredible. Everything about that, that whole game, that sequence, that play, you know, the historical implications – just everything. That was just I mean, I thought it was we all thought it was over. I don't think anybody thought at that point that he were gonna win. But the heat, pretty much. And they were I think they were down five right, is that right? Five points with twenty seconds. That's
1: it was yeah, I think it was five and then the yeah, because of the free throws and then and he made one Kawhi made one of the two. That sounds right. And and also to me I think the reason that I was so skeptical of what was gonna happen is that it was against the Spurs, and so you figured that whereas other teams, you know, you'd be in those situations and you'd be thinking of ways that the other team could beat themselves. I didn't think that with the Spurs, and I I, I don't even think that that's really what happened. I mean, there were some cross-ups in terms of the rebounding and stuff, but overall, I think the Heat just kind of pulled it out more yeah, than the first really
0: good place, and that's what any coach will tell you at the end of the game. Like, anything can happen even for a smart team like the Spurs. You know, one in five seconds, right, it's just a ball bouncing a certain way, and then that's why you don't want that situation to begin with where a team can come back on you because crazy stuff happens sometimes. It's a basketball.
1: And the other thing about, Ray, about Ray's shot that makes it so amazing is that it took what was an unquestionable loss and made it into a situation that they were going to win. You know, you see a lot of things where a guy makes an amazing shot and it changes a tie to a win or something like that, but they were, they were dead in the water if he misses that shot, and then yeah, they won the championship out of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I remember after the game, everyone was asking – how the Spurs recover for Game Seven? And what I was thinking, it's like I think they'll be fine for Game Seven. But if they lose Game Seven, then Game Six, they'll think about it forever. That's the thing. When you're 50, then you remember that one time I couldn't went the other way. But the the, the after it happened, I think you just play the next day of basketball.
1: Won? They could have won Game Seven too. <laughs> oh yeah, they were there the whole time. It was four or point, five points, then the game. Yeah, and Duncan missed that really close uh, bunny shot, and that would have that would have totally changed the dynamics. But game six was it was it was in terms of a moment. I mean, that was legitimately amazing.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking. I think really for me, the only shot that's even close to that in terms of the effects, it didn't end up happening because the, the Mavs lost that year. Dirk's and won against Antonio in 0-6. Game seven on the OT on the road, down three. That was the only one shot I've ever seen that kind of level. Well, wasn't for Spurs, I guess, really, but those two shots—that Ray Allen three, that Dirk and one—I guess Derek Fisher. Man, the Spurs had, had a couple. Oof, yeah.
1: Well, and that Spurs one, the Derek Fisher shot—I was actually living in LA at the time—and I think a lot of people have lost in over time how crazy Tim Duncan shot oh, that yeah, gave the that, Spurs that the lead. Probably, yeah, for
0: sure. That was a ridiculous shot. Fade away. Yeah, like and then
1: and that's what led to Shaq's quote of one lucky shot deserves another, even though I didn't see Duncan's shot as being particularly lucky and I saw Fisher's shot as insanely lucky. Well yeah, I mean at point three seconds. I didn't even know that was
0: possible. I was I was like that's even I think everyone who played basketball did that for like years after Derek Fisher shot. You know, yeah. that little the shot, man. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Have a great New Year's and look forward to talking to you in twenty fourteen.
0: No problem, man. Have a good one.
1: Thanks again to Jonathan for coming on. You can read him at Real GM and you can also follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Charks. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S. Next up is Andrew Perna, who also writes for Real GM. Runs about 15 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much to Andrew for coming back on. No problem, Danny. Uh, Anytime. Let's start with your story of 2013.
2: Well, I chose uh, kind of a more personal story for, for the year. Happened in April slash May. Um, you know, not from the Boston area, but been covering to Celtics for four or five years up here on a pretty regular basis, and, and of course, the end of the Pierce-KG doc era came this summer uh, when the Knicks eliminated the Celtics. It wasn't known exactly what the future held for the team, but... There was a palpable feeling, I think, in the arena that night that it was kind of over, you know, in some way, shape, or form. You didn't know exactly who was going to go or in what order, but it seemed like that was the end. And for me, that was a huge moment, I think, for more than just one franchise, it turned out, three franchises affected by that with, you know, KJ and Pierce going to Brooklyn and Doc going to Los Angeles. At this point, everybody having varying degrees of success uh, in their new eras, but it was it was a cool moment I think for me to experience personally because you could just sense the emotion in the locker room after the game from all three of the guys you know Doc is obviously famously a very emotional guy and he did not hold back then you know sensing what was going to happen and then you know of course earlier this month he comes back to Boston and welcomes with a warm reception regardless you know of how things ended uh, and Pearson KG I mean is a lifelong Celtic you could just kind of tell that. He might have been at the end of his rope or at the end of his run with the team and, you know, come to find out that was the case. And, uh, and KG, who can be a little prickly with the media at times, was very retrospective and um, almost reverential uh, in his end-of-the-season interview. So it was cool to see that different side, and you could just kind of see the doors opening to a new era and and things kind of being set in motion you know even though it turned out to be months before anything officially ever happened
1: when you walked out of the garden that night because i believe you covered that game did you what was your guess on which of those three were going to be gone
2: oh uh, you know, yes i did cover that game and i and i figured personally at that point in time my thought process was you know they're going to trade pierce i thought garnett would retire And I honestly thought it was a 50-50 shot for Doc to either coach elsewhere or, you know, spend some time with his own family and take a few years off, which at one point in time had been rumored to be the front-runner for his future. I really had, and, and, and of all three of those things, the one I turned out to be wrong on was what I had the strongest feeling on. Just the way that Garnett talked after that game, Especially for a guy that's as competitive and, you know, famously as competitive as he is, minutes after being, you know, eliminated from the playoffs, in many eyes the worst night of the year or season for an NBA player. Um, if they're lucky enough to make it to the playoffs, he was just calm and collected, and I just kind of felt, you know, maybe this is it for him. You know, he had struggled a little bit last season, forced into some roles by the Celtics that he wasn't accustomed to for a variety of reasons and I just thought maybe this is it uh that turned out not to be the case but that was definitely the feeling that I left the garden with that night
1: we'll move on from from that to the biggest disappointment of the year for you
2: and that kind of you know blends into the conversation because the biggest disappointment for me had been the Knicks and the Nets and and all that encompasses New York basketball this season it's not completely unexpected. I was not high on the Nets to begin the season. Again, Pearson KG going there, I think Garnett has lost a considerable amount, which you could only assume at this point with all the minutes that he's logged on that body. And, you know, Pierce kind of has the guy that a lot of uh, the game, that a lot of people think, you know, he has the old man type of game where he can get along without a ton of athleticism, which he never really had to begin with. And that has been the case. But Both the Knicks and the Nets have just been so poor this season. They've shown flashes and then gone back, seeming to take steps back within the same week. And in the Eastern Conference, we needed these two teams to kind of put up a decent fight to keep it from being just a running battle between Miami and Indiana. And at this point, God forbid anything happens to either of those two teams because we would have absolutely no race in the East.
1: If I've been asking a lot of people who've come on the podcast recently this, but if you were the GM of the Knicks and had complete control... Would you? What would you do with the team more specifically with Carmelo Anthony?
2: Well, it's tough. I mean, you know, Carmelo's gotten a lot of knocks. Uh, he's taken a lot of heat. And, and then Office has taken a lot of heat for not being able to put a proper roster around him and him for the way he, you know, left Denver and kind of forced stuff out of the hand and that the Knicks had to trade so much, so much to get him that it's kept them from putting pieces around him. And, you know, when I talk about that, a lot of things, times I think what people forget is the Knicks thought they were signing a very healthy Amari Stoudemire. And if Amari Stoudemire didn't, you know, become this shell of his former self, imagine where the Knicks would be at this point in time. And then you, that goes along the same lines with Tyson Chandler. I mean, look at the difference he provides to them when he is on the floor and when he isn't. They are obviously a very different defensive team. There's not a lot of defenders on that team besides him and Schumper. So if you put him on the floor, he makes everybody else look better. And when he's not there to protect the rim, it kind of exposes everyone else, especially with Barnani. I mean, you know, if you have him there, you obviously needed a big man who could protect the rim because he's not over his defense, and that has fallen through. So, you know, with that said to your question, I mean, what I would do, I mean, it's hard to part with Carmelo at this point. You've kind of, even though there's options in your future i feel like they've kind of put their eggs in that basket uh so i think it's really just retooling what's around him and you know what can they do again it's going to be the same type of situation where they're going to hope that the moves that they make are going to pay off and are going to go as expected and they're not going to go like for instance the son of signing
1: that makes a lot of sense so we'll move on to the your player of the year for all of 2013
2: and this was a tough one. I kinda of went back and forth. I you know, I thought about the obvious LeBron winning another title, I thought about Paul George for the jump he's made last season and this, seeing as we're talking about the calendar year. Um, but I decided to go with Kevin Durant. He's kind of developed this mentality of, you know, he's always been the bridesmaid and never the bride, always in second place, you know, drafted after Odin, losing the title for LeBron, losing M V P to LeBron, but I mean, the year he's had has been pretty spectacular. I mean, he polished off last season, you know, a 50-40-90 season. He's become a much better shooter, I think, in, in all facets, really, since he came into the league. He's starting to make his teammates a lot better around him. He pushed the Thunder as far as I think anyone could have asked him to in the postseason last year once Westbrook went down. His numbers are good this year. His percentages aren't quite as good. But he's still, you know, extremely efficient. I know I kind of go back and forth on PER, but he's third, you know, behind LeBron and Kevin Love. Kevin Love was another guy I thought of for this. And I just think that we're getting to the point with Durant where he is in the conversation of, you know, the best two players in the league, especially with Kobe aging and going down. And you got to wonder, when is he going to become that number one? Is LeBron going to allow him to be that? become that number one or will he forever be number two but I decided to throw him a bone and make him my number one
1: and I think that lost in the shuffle of everything else from this year is that you know that that Oklahoma City won a series against an admittedly flawed Houston team but they won that series after Westbrook went down and a lot of other teams given the the impact of losing a player in a series which I think is different than what happened to the Bulls with Rose um, last year when he was gone for the whole year as opposed to the year before when he was hurt and I think that that that's a nice little testament for Durant because that team was built to have to to have two guys and that they were able to beat a very respectable Rockets team without them is testament to his talent
2: absolutely and that's a great point you know losing a guy during a series just takes away the whole you know your entire game plan pre-series and Um, You know, the Bulls had last year time to prepare for what, you know, what their game plan was going to become. And I think uh, another thing that I really liked about Durant this year, and they built marketing campaigns around it, but he's kind of, I don't know if, it may be a little forced, but he's tried to build a little bit of an edge in his personality in his game. I know he got a tech last night. Whether it's genuine or not, I think it's something that is a little needed. You know, Westbrook has that strange personality, and Durant has kind of always been the nice guy. Um, but you know, you need a little bit of a killer instinct. I mean, not that he ever wasn't intense on the court as a nice guy, but it's it's just something a little extra he's he's kind of added to, in hopes of you know pushing them over the edge. And and maybe needing to take the reins last year, you know, against the Rockets was what kind of pushed him over that edge. And you know, in in reality, it's really scary to think. But you know, he has to take advantage of being at the height of his game right now because you know windows close and open pretty quickly in the NBA.
1: That is completely true. Who was your pick for coach of 2013?
2: You know, again, a lot of candidates, but uh, I went with Frank Vogel. I think what he did with the Pacers last year, some of which bled back into 2012, um, was pretty tremendous. Handling losing Granger shortly before the season, having him only play five games, overseeing kind of the development into a superstar of, of Paul George, continued development this season overseeing Stevenson become capable starter in this league, which a lot of people didn't think was possible. Hibbert, you know, continuing to be a tremendous defensive force, keeping that team along the same lines with, with a team mentality, especially, you know, as a younger coach, a guy who didn't come in with a pedigree, and yet he's gotten all these guys to completely buy in uh, in his fourth season to, you know, a team approach. Um, Stevenson's uh, triple-double exploits notwithstanding, yeah, I think Vogel's done a tremendous job. I think he did. A great, he had some great game plans against Miami in the Eastern Conference Finals. Obviously, aside from Game One, taking Hibbert out on the final play, which may have determined the series at that point, because you know they just exchanged when they lost for the rest of the way. But you know, I think Vogel's done a great job. And again, he doesn't necessarily—you know—he doesn't have a LeBron. He doesn't maybe he doesn't even have a Dwayne Wade. He may in the future with with Paul George in the very very near future. But I think he's done a great job, and, and again, a lot is going to go on to what happens in the playoffs against Miami, but this is 2013, and that will be 2014.
1: It's been a really remarkable thing to see what that team can do without really a go-to crunch time scorer in the previous time, and then we'll see if Paul George can become that in a playoff series, Cause especially against Miami, because if I've been thinking about what the Pacers is, you know. Can Paul George do what he's been doing with LeBron on him for the entire fourth quarter? And that's going to be the test. I think that might be the most important question of 2014.
2: Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, you even saw, I mean, and it's not just with LeBron on him, it's been with also having to guard LeBron. I mean, on Friday night, Indiana played Houston. And yeah, they blew them out. But in the first half, he was shadowing Harden. And, you know, he offensively, he was awful. At what point does Vogel, number one, I think, need to start thinking about lessening Georgia's workload on both ends this regular season in preparation for the playoffs? I mean, you see all the good, the really good, savvy teams do it in, in Miami and San Antonio, and I think even though George and the Pacers are young, they're going to have to eventually think about doing something like that because, as you said, you know, it's great if, you know, is putting up 20, 25 points, but when they need 10 from him in the fourth quarter, you know, Against LeBron when he's have had to chase him for you know thirty minutes already and he's already had him on him for thirty minutes you know is he going to be able to come through and you know that's probably going to be you know the deciding factor assuming these two teams do meet in the conference finals
1: and we'll we'll end on what your pick for the moment of the year for twenty
2: thirteen I you know, I apologize for going a little further, fundamental I did with the uh, the Boston air ending my story for my moment uh, I'm gonna go with David Stern's final draft announcement uh, this past June Um, it was Phoenix you know what Stern has done for this league has been well chronicled. somebody of you and I's generation really only knows him as commissioner and you know the things that he did for this league a league that was struggling in the early 80s with cocaine and public perception and revenues and the league that it is now that's become so much more mainstream, building things with Magic and Bird and Jordan and to LeBron, where we are today. There are definitely flaws in the league when it comes to, you know, structures of things. And people are always going to find complaints and issues with the CBA. And now we're seeing a lot of it with the draft lottery process and stuff like that. But I, you cannot discount, I think, what David Stern did for the league. It's hard to tell if you put things in a vacuum if somebody else would have been able to do the same thing in his place. I tend to say no. And, you know, to see him have that love-hate relationship with the fans in New York every draft and to see him kind of play it up in the last few years and then kind of embrace it uh, for his last first-round pick and the way he's handled things with Silver as well. I think him making that last pick and – the fans saluting him was a pretty cool moment this calendar year and it's something that I'll, I'll remember
1: well thank you so much for taking the time that's a that's a great way to end this and best of luck in 2014 you as well danny thanks take care thanks again to andrew for coming on you can read him at real gm and you can follow him on twitter at andrew perna that's a-n-d-r-e-w underscore p-e-r-n-a last up in terms of guests is shamshania He writes for RealGM.com, and our conversation runs about 15 minutes. Really enjoyed having him. Thank you so much for coming on.
3: Yeah, no problem. Appreciate you having me on.
1: It's great to have you. So, when we're looking at all of 2013, I figure the good place to start is what you feel is the story of the year.
3: I would say what captivated me most was just the Heat's run toward a back-to-back championship. Obviously, when they first got together, everyone seemed like it would be a cakewalk for them year-in, year out in the playoffs. But what just captivated me most was just how, how much of a battle they got out of Indiana. And then, obviously, San Antonio in the finals. Two hard-fought seven-game series. LeBron having to just pull everything out of his, all his tricks. And just how hard both, both the teams played them. And, obviously, LeBron winning his second straight finals MVP after everyone basically piled on him after he made his decision to sign with Miami. And, really, he, he won... Back a lot of fans in the process through all that, nursing him back on a lot of commercials. Continued rise of LeBron and the Heat, of course.
1: And it'll be interesting to see how that conti- goes into 2014 because there's so much uncertainty with this team. But they were they were, to me at least, clearly the best team of this calendar year.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You had teams like India- Indiana come on late. Teams like Oklahoma City fall because of injury. But yeah, I think that Heat- he obviously we're the best team of 2013 uh you have Indiana coming on right now this season as one of the best teams Portland obviously Golden State coming out of nowhere but yeah the Heat are obviously the class of the league right now
1: moving on to the only more depressing topic that we're going to talk about but what would you say is the biggest disappointment of the year of this year
3: yeah league wide i would just say the biggest disappointment would be all the injuries that have just decimated and smushed. in a lot of ways stripped the league of a lot of fun you know, you hear a lot of players and coaches talk about how, you know, guys like Derrick Rose or, and mm-hmm. Russell Westbrook are healthy. the The league is in a better place, and that's so accurate. Just going back to the playoffs last year, I hope Derrick Rose has made a big difference, and he went down again, obviously, this year. remember Russell Westbrook getting hurt in the playoffs last year probably stripped Oklahoma City of another chance at making it in the West. Kobe going down twice now. And a lot of people forget in the finals, Tony Parker was amazing that first game. Uh, he got a little bit of an ankle injury as the series went on uh, in the finals against the Heat. So that obviously hampered him a little bit. But it just seems like you know injuries have overall just stripped the league of a lot more fun. It's been great, the uh, long series. But then, you know, it was interesting because I covered that game in Indianapolis when Derrick Rose came back. And just going to the locker room pre- pregame, Pacers locker room, I mean, just asking a couple of players, you know, what they felt about Derek's return. And it just seemed like a lot of a lot of guys were just happy for him more than anything. You know, you put put aside the games and, you know, the competitive spirits. A lot of these guys are fans of him. So I think stuff like that goes a long way. And I think the league is obviously in a much better place when those guys are healthy and playing on the court.
1: Do you have any sort of explanation that you're kind of thinking is the most likely reasoning for the rash of injuries that we've been seeing in the last couple of years?
3: Yes, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, through the eras, it seems like a lot of guys nowadays are just so well-conditioned, well toned, compared to years past, eras past. I would just say maybe a little bit too much stress on the body um, in terms of how hard players work out. I mean, it's funny. You go you go back and watch videos of games even in the mid-2000s and then you compare it to now. Guys just look so much well-conditioned now. You've got a lot more athletes coming in. So I, what I would just say is maybe it's one of those things where they're just putting too much stress on the body in, in terms of working out. And it was interesting. I, I heard something recently in regards to Derrick Rose where he wears all these knee pads. You know, he wears knee pads. He wears armor-type padding underneath his jersey. So I think all that goes a long way into, you know, not allowing your body to just do what it's supposed to do and, you know, shielding it. So I think, you know, overall it's just about the stress that these guys seem to put on their body that just allows them to put them into positions of getting to freak incidents and freak injuries.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Moving on to a happier topic, who was your pick as the most outstanding player of 2013?
3: I would say LeBron James. Winning a second MVP, I think that's an easy choice. But then, uh, but then you know another uh, I'm, I'm guy right behind him who just came on in the playoffs and just emerged would be Paul George. I don't think a lot of people last year at the beginning of last season saw him as a max player, but he really emerged as one. And then he made Indiana's decision to extend him pretty easy. He went from you know a guy who's on the cusp of greatness to a surefire max player. So I think you know in terms of most outstanding rises, I think that would be uh, Paul George, but then, in terms of you know steady production and just getting better on both ends of the court, LeBron James would be a guy
1: there There've already been in recording this a couple of discussions in terms of Paul George and kevin Durant if you If you had to choose one of the two of them to have on your team for the rest of their career, which one would you rather have?
3: I think I would still rather go with Kevin Durant. I love Paul George, I think he's a great more than anything. I think he's he's a great you know team guy. Uh, he's a guy teammates can go to for anything. But I think Kevin Durant's overall greatness, his scoring is just unmatched in the league. I know a lot of people talked about Carmelo Anthony being the league's best scorer. I think it's Kevin Durant, I don't, in terms of pure efficient scoring, I think it's Kevin Durant. I, I don't even think it's that close right now in terms of just pure scoring. Um, he's so efficient. He didn't have to take that many shots. You, you see all these stats about how Russell Westbrook just shoots so much more than Kevin Durant. yeah, Kevin Durant's averaging more points than him. You know, he can score over 25 points even if he takes just 12 to 15 shots. Just how efficient he is. And a lot of people, you know, overlook the fact that he's gotten so much better in terms of passing, playmaking for his teammates, rebounding. Paul George is an excellent overall player. He's probably got the edge on Kevin Durant defensively. But in terms of overall play, I just go with Kevin Durant. And then, obviously, you have the scoring that just gives him a major edge. And a lot of people overlook, as I said earlier, the fact that he's getting a lot better in terms of being an overall player, you know, following the footsteps of LeBron.
1: And I feel like among hardcore basketball fans, casuals are a separate thing. I feel like LeBron now is so highly regarded that I feel that he's kind of out of a lot of that conversation. And then Durant, I feel, in in those circles, is finally getting his just due because people aren't comparing him to LeBron anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think, that, I, I think that that's a good thing because, LeBron is—he's just at a different level, and if you're gonna—I I think that you're, he's in the short conversation for best players ever. And having Durant in that—he's just not there yet. He might get there, maybe. But what he does on the floor is almost impossible to get from anybody else except for LeBron.
3: I agree with you completely, and and if you and, and if you just sit back and just look at this era that we're in right now, just you can just call it the LeBron era. I mean, if you just take a step back. He, the run he's on right now and the run I think he's going to keep going on, no matter if he stays in Miami. I think, you know, he's he sort of put himself as as the Michael Jordan of this era where he's just completely dominating this era in terms of championship, individual accolades, everything. You know, he's the guy, and I think he, you're right in that he's really totally separated himself in terms of the greats in the game right now. And I think, you know, Kevin Durant sort of put himself in the position of being compared to him when they met in the finals, uh, and then LeBron got the best of them. And then obviously with his comments to Sports Illustrated, I believe last season, saying, you know, he doesn't want to be second. He hates being second and all that. (laughs) But I think as long as LeBron's still in his prime, he's number one for sure.
1: How about your choice for Coach of the Year for 2013?
3: This might be cheating. I'm going with two people. I'm going Frank Vogel and Greg Popovich. Just Pop in terms of, you know, He just epitomizes sustainability. I wrote about about the Spurs a few weeks ago, just Tim Duncan's ability. And he he sort of just him and Greg Popper just seemed to epitomize everything the Spurs are about and how how they've been able to sustain, even though, you know, guys are obviously getting older. They've had moving parts here and there. And then Frank Vogel, I I loved him from the start with Indianapolis, just how he was able to just bring a swagger to that team. Uh, and it seemed to carry over this year as, as they've improved. And, and a lot of people overlook that, you know, with with the, with the team's young with the young team's success, things can, things can falter at times. Guys can get overconfident the, the following season, and he's just been able to keep everyone at bay. Everyone listens to him on that team, so they've been they've been able to avoid a lot of that. You, just, you obviously you're privy to it more than I am, but you know, Golden State. Is a team that, like Indiana, they, they got a lot of success last year, a lot of unexpected success in a lot of ways. And they've they've been hovering over, around 500, but Frank Vogel's done a very nice job. Uh, without Danny Granger plugging in a, a, a revamped bench. So I think Frank Vogel and Greg Popovich are my co- coaches of the year.
1: And it's interesting that you bring up the Warriors, because I was thinking about that the perfect capper in some ways to reflect this year for Popovich was the fact that they – beat the Warriors on Thursday at Oracle without Duncan, Manu, and Parker playing. And from exactly. a coach and system perspective, there are very few elite teams that could be missing, even if you don't think they're their three best players, three of their top five in almost all cases. Any team missing those guys going on the road to a to a tough place, they wouldn't have a chance of pulling it out. And they won it even though the Warriors started strong. It wasn't one of those games where they took the lead and just barely held on. They came back and took it.
3: Exactly, and you see around the league a lot of coaches and a lot of organizations just following the footsteps of San Antonio in terms of just establishing a system, and and that goes a long way. And you don't even need to have premier talent to have a sustainable system. Just being in Chicago, you know, Tom Thibodeau and what they've got going over here, it sort of reminds me of that. Obviously now this has been kind of depleted in terms of his roster, but you know even when Derrick Olds was healthy or out, a lot of what Thibodeau did remind me of Popovic, in that, you know, he was able to just get every ounce out of his team, even no matter who's in the lineup. And now I think, you know, a lot of coaches are following this. You you have a guy like Steve Clifford just getting everything out of that team in Charlotte, Brad Stevens as a rookie coach. So, yeah, I mean, system goes a long way in the league. It gets overlooked a lot. Uh, it's, it's a very underrated aspect. Uh, and San Antonio's mastered it.
1: And it's good that you bring up the young coaches because yeah, this this year's first year class in particular is really remarkable. Hornacek is doing a fantastic job with, with Phoenix. Also the, the Popovich disciples, Brown and Boonholzer are both doing very good jobs in their respective cities. Even though the Sixers have fallen off, it seems to me when I watch them that they're relatively well coached. It's just that their talent isn't there partially by design.
3: Yeah. The Sixers specifically, uh, I was at their game on Saturday, you know, They're exactly like, you know, a team that just is founded on its system. Um, They play hard. They listen to their coach. And a lot of what Brett Brown does reminds me of, you know, Pop a little bit. Just the way he he just gets on his players just every second of the game. He's always up. So in a lot of ways that's kind of Tom Thibodeau-esque. But, you know, he he also relaxes a little bit, and he's really on them. He's really on the, on the 76ers. So, yeah, I mean, you have a lot of coaches, a lot of first-year coaches doing big things. Uh, Jeff Horn effect you named. So I, I think it's just about guys more than ever. It's just about guys buying in. So, it's not totally about X's and, X's and O's, and you saw that with Mark Jackson last season, you know, getting guys to buy in. And, well, Mark Jackson, he's a former player, but more than anything, what he does, and I don't know if I'm wrong, but, you know, it just seems like more than anything, he preaches to them. And Eric Spolsky sort of, you know, has mastered this the past few seasons where he's not – it's funny because you go into those – when it's a national TV game, they they wire the coaches. Um, And not a lot of what Spolzer says is X's and O's, like, you know, defensive or offensive commands. It's more, you know, get your head in the game. You know, it's more like he's preaching preaching to them emotionally and mentally. Um, And I think a lot of coaches now are sort of getting toward that and getting their first buy buy-in.
1: Yeah, and it's it's nice to see that, and it feels like there's more maximization of talent. Also, from I think that as GMs are getting more savvy, and when you're talking about the two coaches that you that you chose for for Coach of the Year, both have general managers and front offices that are very in tune with what they want, and that makes it. I think that probably makes it a lot easier for coaches to get the most out of the players.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean stability is is huge uh, in the NBA. R.C. Buford's been there for a while. Uh, Larry Bird, Donnie Walsh, Kevin Pritchard just formed a trio of, you know, well-established executives. So stability is is huge, and a lot of people forget Pop is in tune with a lot of the the decision-making on the management front in San Antonio. So, I mean, it's no coincidence you see a lot of this, you know, stable and established franchises staying at the top right now.
1: And I'll let you go on your moment of the year from 2013.
3: I think a lot of people would go with the Ray Allen three in the finals in game six to send that game in, into overtime and then pushing the Heat to the championship again. But what still sticks in my mind, and I wrote about this after the game, after that game was the bronze. His, his transcendent moment in the finals where he had the, the block on Thiago's splitter, he had the assist for the three, and then the fine defensive position, uh, possession, he had the steal. Uh, that led to, to a dunk. Uh, just being in the arena uh, in Miami, it was just unbelievable That just watching that sequence live. The best example of greatness and just everything LeBron's about in one possession. Um, he did everything on the court. So that that moment still in my mind. So I would go with that for my moment in the year.
1: Well, I'll let those be the last words. Thank you so much for coming on.
3: I appreciate it, Danny. Have a good one.
1: Thanks again to Shams Trania for coming on. You can read him at Real GM, and you can also follow him on Twitter at S-H-A-M-S-C-H-A-R-A-N-I-A. It felt appropriate to end this with a few of my own thoughts on the different topics that were discussed in these two parts of the year in review. In terms of story of the year, I think there are a lot of good candidates, including the disparity between teams, especially how many bad teams there are right now in the league and possibilities with tanking, but the big story is the dominance of LeBron James in the Heat. He had another fabulous year, as I talked about with Ethan, I think he's done, LeBron has done an unbelievable job turning his weaknesses into strengths. His defense and his shooting have become things that teams have to account for, and He and the Heat beat an excellent Spurs team, a well-coached Spurs team, and a team that was playing well. Tony Parker's injury did take some of the sizzle out of the Spurs, but they still were a remarkable team and led to a fabulous finals. Player of the Year, unsurprisingly, LeBron James. He was absolutely amazing in the regular season and the postseason, and has continued that with whether you want to call it MVP, you want to call it most outstanding for the 2013-2014 season thus far. Coach of the year is Greg Popovich. I I agree pretty closely with Arturo Goletti that Popovich is pretty much the coach of the year, whether or not he wins the award, and while that goes for seasons or that goes for calendar years, it was certainly true for 2013. The job that he did with the Spurs in the playoffs, especially after a really tough start against the Golden State Warriors, which has gotten lost in the shuffle, the team pulled out that series, then swept Memphis in the conference finals, and the trophy was on the floor. You don't really need to say more than that in terms of that job and the Spurs are again fantastic this year. The disappointment of the year could go in a lot of different directions. I think that the best way to articulate it is that the injuries that we have seen while disappointing and Tom Habistro wrote a nice piece about how it's not really unprecedented, but how it has robbed us of So many great matchups in the playoffs and the regular season alike. I wrote in a non-National Games of the Week piece that it was really legitimately shocking that as of early part of the season, Derrick Rose and Kyrie Irving had never played a game against each other. And fortunately, they got one in before Derrick Rose got hurt again and will presumably miss the rest of the season, and I think it's unlikely they'll face each other in the playoffs. So to see things like that, Russell Westbrook taking Oklahoma City out of the playoffs, functionally speaking, and a slew of other injuries, big and small, the fact that we won't probably get to see a healthy Brooklyn Nets team, maybe ever, you know, that team that I thought was built for the playoffs and touted before the season, acknowledging their injuries, we'll we'll never really get to see that, and that's disappointing. That's part of the league, though. It happens in basketball just like it happens in every other sport. And the moment of the year, as most of my guests said, was Ray Allen hitting the shot. Game 6 was one of those special moments that you don't often see, in honestly, in any sport. If you think back on Super Bowls, and you think on NBA Finals, games and Baseball World Series has a couple more, usually the great games happen with a little bit less stakes, and they happen earlier rounds of the playoffs, or in a non-elimination game, even in the finals. And it was a great game through and through, and Ray Allen's moment is there. And then also even that whole fourth quarter once LeBron lost the headband and it went into a different thing. And when you boil a year that was had a lot of fun basketball and had a lot of excellent players, excellent plays, down, I feel like game six in particular is going to be something that sticks with me for the rest of my life. And if I'm lucky enough to have kids, it's something that I'll, I'll tell them about. But it's been an absolutely fabulous year. I think that NBA fans should be over the moon excited about what's coming up in 2014 with the young teams, the excellent new coaches, and a a crop of players in this draft class that's legitimately special. I write a lottery lowdown piece about once a month for Real GM, and I'm a big draft guy, and I'm really excited to see this combined with the medical technology that has led to players having longer careers. Hopefully we see that with Kobe, but... If you see more guys stick around and the young guys coming in stay in good quality, we're in for some absolutely incredible years of NBA basketball. Thank you so much to all seven of my guests for coming on, and thank you to all of you for listening. It's been an incredibly gratifying and fun couple months to take this from off the ground into what it is now. I continue to try to make it better each and every week, and your input is a, a huge part of that. So you can send me things to my email, which is daniel.larue at realgm.com. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Danny Leroux, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. So thank you to my guests. Thank you to Real GM for providing this platform, which I enjoy using so much. And thank you to the listeners. Take care, happy new year, and make it a great day. <music>
0: Napa guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it. Instead, let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level. And with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is. It's not perfect, but it's perfect for him. That's Napa know-how.